Welcome to the Appalachian Folklore Podcast, a wild hike through the history and migration of the folk culture, stories, traditions, and haints hidden in the hills and hollers of Appalachia. I'm your host, Aaron Bobick. Hey folks, welcome to this month's episode of the Appalachian Folklore Podcast, or should I say welcome back? It's the first new episode I've done in a couple of months. In that time, I had the pleasure of interviewing Liza Frank for her new book, Everyday Folklore. If you listened to yesterday's bonus episode, you'll be familiar with Liza Frank. She told us some New Year's Eve folklore from around the world. And today, for a brand new year of Appalachian Folklore Podcast, She's going to tell you about her wonderful book. I hope you all enjoy. Please let me know if you do. And be sure to follow her on social media. She'll give all the links at the end. And do please buy her book. It really is, as you will hear, a wonderful collection of folk traditions and practices that you can do every day in some way, shape, or form. I mean, I'm going to go on and on about it for the next hour here. So if you're not convinced by the end of that, Uh, I don't know what's wrong. I hope you all enjoy this wonderful New Year's Day episode of the Appalachian Folklore Podcast. Thanks so much. Welcome to the Appalachian Folklore Podcast, author of the book Everyday Folklore, Liza Frank. And we are here today to talk about this wonderful new book and just folklore in general. So thank you for stopping by. Oh, thank you for having me. It's lovely to be here. So we were talking for about 20 minutes beforehand and had really good introduction. Everybody else missed out on it. So if you want to go ahead and talk about yourself (laughs) and the little bit of an introduction on the book, because we're going to dive deep into it. And then we'll just talk about folklore, your inspirations and all that. So who are you? Who am I? That's a very good question. (laughs) Um, So (laughs) I have been lots of things. Uh, I used to be a stage manager in theatre and I did that for many years and then I came out of theatre, went back into education and became a photographer and uh, did that for many years and that's my first book, uh, My Celebrity Boyfriend, which was a collection of photographs of me posing with lots of famous men pretending to be my boyfriend, was uh, published many, many years ago. Uh, That was fun and then I sort of needed to pay my mortgage. So I became a PA and administrator and uh, did that for a couple of artistic directors for theater, people that I'd known um, when I was stage managing. And then I sort of segued into writing more and uh, I ended up doing a master's uh, at Goldsmiths in creative and life writing. And it was, when I was doing that, that I kind of realized that I was relying quite a lot on folklore for the basis of my stories. And um, I was using a lot of myth and incorporating just a tiny bit of um, magical realism into my work. And it sort of got me thinking about uh, folklore in in general. I've always been hugely into it. Uh, You know, when I was a child reading fairy tales by Joan Aitken, um, Lloyd Alexander with, in his Pride Dane Chronicles, I was glued to. And so I, I was actively thinking, how can I, how can I get more of a voice, more of my, how can I 
get more folklore into my writing mm -hmm. without it feeling kind of quite forced. And at the same time, I'd been chatting with my friend, uh, Jenny Toxvig, and um, we'd both read this book called The Stones Are Hatching. And I, unfortunately, I can't pronounce the author's surname, but it's her first name is Geraldine. It's an absolutely amazing book. It was all about, it was basically people living their lives through the rules of folklore. Oh, wow. And that sounds really interesting. It's it's fantastic. I mean, it's it's just, it's a story, but they're just basically day-to-day -day doing everything in sort of a folkloric kind of way. Mm -hmm. And we both independently just read this book and uh, we sat there going, well, you know, could we live by the rules of folklore for an entire year? So, you know, get to see the cyclical nature of everything. And we sort of laughed it off, but we did kind of keep thinking of it. And about 10 years later, I sort of rang her up and said, look, I think I want to do this. And we went for lunch and we talked through the logistics and what that would actually mean. So I decided that that's what I would do. But in order to sort of keep me accountable, but also to look at the way that I was writing, what I would do is that for every day for a year, I would research, experience, write, and then publish um, a blog on the folklore that I'd experienced um, that day. And I would tie it into what was happening elsewhere within the ritual years. So whether or not it was a specific day that had folklore that I could incorporate in, or if the folklore was a little bit beyond what I was capable of doing, um, uh, then I would uh, do something to do with the, the actual day because each each day of the week has certain rules and specifications to it. Like, like you're not supposed to cut your hair on a Friday. You're not supposed to do anything on a Sunday. Um, mm -hmm. And there are rhymes about what you should do for washing, what you should do for laundry, what you should do for all sorts of things. Or I would do it to the month or I would do it to the season. So I decided that that's what I would do. And it was really in the back of my mind, it was really a writing exercise, but I was so excited about the folklore element that it was it was kind of like a little bit of an internal tassel. I made this massive plan and I had this big wall chart with everything written down and Excel spreadsheet. And um, I researched everything and I really, really prepared. And I started it on St. Distaff's Day, which is um, the 7th of January mm -hmm. and was going to roll it through to Twelfth Night um, the following year. And it was 2020 and I had everything planned. And then on the 25th of January, it said that if it gets foggy, this way something wicked comes. And it was foggy <laughs> and go. COVID came, changed everything, really. Um, I I'd still wrote every day and I still researched and explored and experienced everything but it was literally everything that I could do in my front room mm -hmm. because all the festivals the you know the wonderful Scottish fire festivals um things like the Nesborough Nesborough bed race or cuckoo fairs or cheese rolling they were mm -hmm. all out the window because obviously they were they were you know banned because of covid it became a very, very personal project because I had naturally assumed that I would just roam around the UK, staying on various sofas, experiencing 
other people's folklore. So I would be almost a bystander within the folklore and then just sort of like do a review. And the the project had to change because obviously I couldn't do that. So all of a sudden I was um, trying out remedies, doing all the baking, um, trying to recreate various festivals in my own home. <laughs> and it was fascinating. It was just so fascinating. And incredibly stressful as well, because there were days where I had so much to do. And yet I still had to set aside three hours to do something folkloric <laughs> within that. And uh, my Internet would regularly go down or my page would go down. And so sometimes I'd write up everything that I'd done and then spend three hours trying to post it because my deadline was midnight. I had right. to do it. By you midnight. had to do it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it, it was fantastic. And I I genuinely enjoyed it there's something about doing something ridiculous every single day and I'm not saying that the folklore was ridiculous but in context of what else was happening in the world making a plum duff and boiling it in your favorite tea towel is it's quite bizarre and very very <laughs> satisfying even if the plum duff turns out to be one of the most disgusting things I've ever eaten there is still something quite delicious about okay, so I've done this today and I would have been sitting on the sofa watching repeats of a really crappy television sure. show. Yeah. Had I not been There doing are worse it. things you can do with your time. We all <laughs> learned that very quickly in COVID for sure. Exactly. And I think it kept me sane, to be honest, because it gave me something to do every single day. And it gave me a, a tiny, tiny slice of joy every single day. There were some days where I had everything planned and then I just genuinely couldn't do it because of other life. And so I would sort of look around and go, okay, what what herbs have I got in the house? And then quickly research what I could do with dill. And then finding out that if you put dill over the over your threshold, um, it repels evil spirits. And so really? I've, there's to this day, <laughs> to this day, I still have some very withered dill above uh the mantle of the front door to the house there was um one of my neighbors um moved at this point i uh i left as as one of the days i left them a little uh the new person that was moving in i left them a little um present of salt and bread and and coins that all represent good things someone moving in and he admitted to me uh a couple of weeks later that he was actually a shaman in training and had specifically chosen this area because of all the good vibes. And it's basically because I'd been warding the entire area with salt and dill and witch cakes and hagstones and all sorts of things. So it was for him, it was like, oh, I'm just stepping into something that is um, very well protected. That's wonderful. <laughs> wow. I wanted to, to add, because we have uh, kind of the same thing over here with the witch cakes and the dill was a new one. Uh, that's one of my favorite herbs. I have a little plant growing right now on one of my bookshelves. With all that said, you got to experience as best you could a lot of these traditions and from various cultures. Did you ever get to go back out into the real world when when everything was lifted? Did you get to go experience any of these festivals that you you got to miss out on or had to miss out on because of COVID? Um, no, I wanted to. Um, and actually, I I had done quite a few myself beforehand. So, for instance, in Brighton, there is 
one of the most amazing festivals called Burning the Clocks, which happens on uh, the solstice, uh, the winter solstice. And it's um, loads of people and children make these amazing lanterns um, out of tissue paper and withy canes. And it's a beautiful procession through the um, town. And then it all goes down into the beach and there's this amazingly huge bonfire on the beach and the lanterns get sacrificed to the bonfire. And the lanterns are imbued with the wishes and the dreams of the people that make them. So they're specifically when you make them, you're, you are imbuing you know, what you want to happen with your life and your future and your family mm-hmm. into them. So as soon as they sort of like go up in flames, the, these feelings and, and wishes are released into, into the universe. Um, the year that I was doing it, so I was helping out as the volunteer coordinator. So uh, the, a lot of the, um, lot of the festival is helped by volunteers. So there's a huge chain from the promenade to the bonfire and the lanterns are taken from the promenade down this human chain into the bonfire. The year that I was doing it, it was so stormy and so wet that virtually nothing made it to the bonfire because it had been completely soaked through. It was still an incredibly magical experience, but everybody was literally sopping wet by the end of it. Um, and I've, of course, I've sort of like gone back to see it since and and I haven't been involved with it, but it's just one of those incredibly magical experiences. And while I was writing it, I was also working full time and, you know, I'm a person of a certain age. So I have uh, responsibilities, family responsibilities. So while I had sort of set aside this year of, of doing the folklore every day, Mm-hmm. And when I was writing it, I didn't have that luxury. So as much as I wanted to, you know, go up to Edinburgh for um, Hogmanay, which actually mm-hmm. I've done several times before, and I cannot recommend it highly enough. It's wonderful. Um, I just didn't have that. Um, I didn't have that freedom, unfortunately. But there, you know, there there are ways around it because there there will always be an amazing festival that people just can't get to. Yeah. And there were, you know, there are there's folklore from up and down the land that you just can't make. So have it doing it in a year where I wasn't physically able to go out, it did mean that I was able to create something a little bit different. So obviously I, I wasn't going to Butzer Farm and watching in a giant wicker man being burnt. Which I would was, have been lovely, I'm sure. I would I would oh, love to see that. Amazing. But then, so was making a, you know, a tiny wicker man out of um, some string and a toilet roll and some googly eyes <laughs> and sticking a um, file up it and setting it on fire. So if you can't go and visit these things, you can kind of make your own. And I think that's part of what the book is saying, you know, because we can't just drop it. A lot of people rather can't just drop what they're doing to to go off. So the books and it kind of gives you an alternative of how you can join in in your own way Mm -hmm. I am hoping to get to as many festivals as I possibly can just because having read about them having to listen to people's stories about them and finding out a little bit of background that they all just sound amazing it's going to take me a while to get around them all but I it's definitely bucket list time to to kind of knock all them off 
Definitely. Uh, one of the ones that I'm interested, well, there's two off the top of my head. Uh, a friend of mine, Joe Hickey Hall, who does Modern Fairy Sightings podcast, every year does a wassailing tradition. But just the, the beautiful, the songs and yeah. the banging of the pots and don't have anything like that over here as far as I know. And if we do, then hopefully someone will tell me. <laughs> but a wassailing festival is something I want to see and experience firsthand. Because I've heard from numerous accounts that they're just beautiful. They are. They. I. So that was actually one of the festivals I was able to get to before everything shut down. And uh, there's a wonderful uh, place um, about half an hour from where I am. Um, but they do wassailing. Um, they do wassail every year, and um, you're told to bring. Um, something to bang so I brought a pot and a wooden spoon mm -hmm. and um, my friend and I we uh, we there's a big procession so they have a sort of like a town square there's a big procession and they have wassailing singers and you walk up and you're going through sort of like the countryside and you're listening to them sing and then you you they give you lots of lovely warm cider which is just lovely yes um and then you're in this amazing apple orchard and they've dressed all the trees with these ribbons and uh, it looks beautiful. And then you go through the ceremony and I can't quite remember the entire ceremony, but, um, and each county sort of does things a bit differently. So for instance, Sussex, Sussex you have an apple yowling, um, others you go wassailing, others you go howling. So everybody does it a little bit differently, but the, the the basics are is that you're blessing the trees with cider in the hope that you're going to appease the gods and get a good harvest mm -hmm. so there's usually there's cider poured on the roots there's um bread or toast that's been soaked in cider put in the boughs of the tree for the robins and for the birds to peck at so that they don't peck at the new buds i know that there's salt usually put in the on the roots potentially i might have got that wrong um but then um you get there's lots of singing and then you get the loud noise so there is a there is a common held belief that um spirits sometimes nefarious naughty spirits like to linger around uh trees and orchards to mm -hmm. make mischief with the harvest so um before health and safety uh and um lots of farmers and lots of people would come and and um uh guns so they would fire guns shotguns mm -hmm. to scare away the the evil spirits obviously health and safety came in so this is where pots and pans banging pots of pans and sure. shouting and screaming and that's just basically to drive away all the evil spirits um and then you've got a nice pure clean orchard full of goodwill and good intention and hopefully the gods will, will be um pleased and will will uh you know bless the trees and it's um possibly because we we do live in quite a constrained society so shouting screaming and banging pots isn't really part of our day-to-day -day lives so when you get to be in a position where you're in a, a crowd that's all doing it there's something terribly uplifting about it and very very cathartic a lot of sound a mm -hmm. lot of sound that's being created around you so, and I wanted to ask you too about the Scottish Uphelia festival that's oh. right smack dab the beginning of the book because I had <laughs> coincidentally seen something on television about it. And when I read that, 
I was just like, I, I need to go see this. I want to go see this. So if you could just talk about that for a little bit. And did you build a little ship and set it on fire? Oh, I wish I'd built a tiny Viking ship. That would have been a brilliant <laughs> idea. So up Heliar, it's on the last Tuesday of every January and it's in Lowick in Shetland. So right at the top of Scotland. It's an incredible festival and I didn't get to see it, but I've, I've, looked at lots and lots of videos and basically it started as a little procession fire festival and then it got bigger and bigger and bigger and as you say there's a big viking ship that gets launched and it gets um, put to flame and there are Kayleys all night and, and people dress up and there are pirates and it it just looks fabulous and I read about so I looked at um all the websites and i looked at all the videos but actually there was this most incredible book by gary sutherland he it's called great balls of fire a year of scottish festivals and he basically oh, wow. went round scotland very funny writer and he yeah he was he was just so eloquent about what his experience was at the upheliar and um how wonderful the people were up there and uh they were all laughing at him because uh, he hadn't realized that he would need so much stamina to go through the night because they just, they party all night. It's just this wonderful um, release of tension and wonderful expression of joy. And, and um, yeah. And so I read his account and it was, it was just wonderful. I would love to go out there. So if you're ever going, I'm more than happy to come with you. <laughs> So right there at the beginning of the year, you mentioned this in the introduction, the Valentine's Day tradition that you have listed is probably one of the best things I've read not to do when trying <laughs> to figure out who your future betrothed will be. So if you could tell that story, how you found that, what it is, as I loved it, I thought it was one of the best. So is this the skin ribbon one by yes. any chance? It was okay. skin ribbon and there was something else. Oh, dried worms. Uh, yes. So um, Valentine's Day is a different, is a day of different um, emotions for different people. So for instance, if you're in a relationship, Valentine's Day uh, might be a day of pure joy. However, if you're thinking that your beloved is less than receptive or is sort of drawing away from you um there is a a practice you can do which i strongly suggest that people don't do and uh because it involves going into a graveyard and stealing a corpse and then flaying it and then making it into this giant skin ribbon which you have to wrap around various parts of your beloved's anatomy while they're asleep and then you have to take it off before they wake up and then you have to hide it and it said that if you do, if you go through all of that, then you have secured their love for as long as you want it. So, you know, if you if your partner is drawing away and you want to draw them back, this is uh, this is something that you really should not do. But is, you know, mentioned as a way that you could do because <laughs> nothing says don't leave me like a skin <laughs> ribbon that you made yourself. That's what we call dedication to the cause. Well, exactly. And uh, I mean, there I found another one that is particularly disgusting with corpses. And that's um, if you again, if you have been rejected 
if you get a hair from the person who's rejected you, if you get a hair from their head and thread it through a needle and then thread that through the, the thigh of a cadaver, you're, the person that has rejected you will suddenly miraculously decide that they want you after all and will, will come hmm. back. So there's lots of um, doing things with corpses in order to get your love returned, which I would never recommend doing. No, but I'm going to go a, do that right now. <laughs> but as a trope, I find absolutely fascinating. There's there's I, a lot yeah. of, there's a lot of folklore that I I kind of think, well, who decided that? Who actually tried that? Got a good good result and decided to document it for other people to you know to try if if their life is not going the way that they want it to in the in the love department. Mm-hmm. I find it absolutely fascinating and and just those little tiny gobbits of of belief i could read them all day to be quite honest because well you've you've got plenty of them in your book that's (laughs) one of the things that turned me on to the project initially in this book and and a lot of other folks do the same thing but yours is definitely it's beautiful book and it's all right there there are these incredibly strange little bits of things that speaking with love divination I, i did an episode on love divination i believe last year for valentine's day where it is collecting the hair, doing a certain thing, dumb cakes, dumb dinners, dumb supper. Yeah. All these strange things that at the time I'd never heard of. I too have always been fascinated with who tried this. Yes. <laughs> and recommended it to someone. And then they tried it. They had similar successful results to the point where it became part of the custom. Yes, and your so, book has a lot of that, and I I absolutely love it because you I, it's it it gets you out of nowhere too when you're reading it. You do have a very <laughs> jovial, funny way of writing and saying things in the book, and then you also have like you said you're an academic uh, folklorist, so it is you know you have your it's this saint's day and this saint well uh, a holy well, and then this day you're supposed to grind up crickets and ingest them in urine. <laughs> <laughs> or put them into a page, something weird like that. If you could think of one, what really stuck in your mind of all those weird traditions or, or customs? The So there's this um, there's this custom where uh, on Gruel Thursday, so Gruel Thursday is Maundy Thursday, mm-hmm. but it's called Gruel Thursday in this particular community. I think it's Iona, and I know it's one of the, the islands off the top of Scotland. And they one of the rituals is wading into the sea at midnight so you're in the sea and obviously gruel thursday is going to be a a a march or an april so the sea off scotland in march and april particularly cold Mm -hmm. and they they give an offering of gruel and um mead or um ale to the sea and they chant and the chant is taken back to the shore and everybody on the shore chants to promote a good harvest for seaweed so it's it's giving uh again it's a bit like wassailing mm-hmm. it's offering up to the sea gods and again it's this how who decides that it's gruel and it's mead who decides what it is that you you give to the sea who decides on the timing and and you have to be waist high and i'm i'm guessing it's sort of trial and error so potentially Somebody did it and then that year was really good for seaweed. So they did it again and it produced the same same thing. So it's um 
I've it, it is fascinating how people decide on the rules basically mm-hmm. I re- actually I recreated the the rule Thursday one off Brighton and it was surprisingly joyous I didn't go very steep and it wasn't midnight but there was something surprisingly joyous about the the water and the tense coldness of the water and mm-hmm. and just trying to think actually the weird ones it was so, one that you mentioned about bean spitting and oh. vestal virgins <laughs> so that would be lemuralia yes. so lemuralia was a um a roman ancient roman festival that was on let me see it's on the it's in may and it's on the 9th the 11th and the 13th of may so they did sort of like one day on one day off and it has um sort of shades of halloween in it um and basically so lemurania was the time where you would um if you thought that your house had um spirits that you didn't want to be there or or you had spirits that you felt should be moving on you loved them but they should be moving on and should be doing their own thing rather than hanging around you you would do this sort of exorcism and it was and I again I did this I've I've done this one and you have to um you have to spit um black beans or you can throw black beans you can you can kind of do either and you have to do it round your dwelling and the ghost comes along and picks up the um the beans and they start counting the beans and they it's a bit like it's a tiny bit like the the folklore of vampires get mm-hmm. distracted if you give them things to count and you have to wash your hands at the beginning and you have to wash your hands at the end and you have to do it at midnight and it's basically it's a it's a ritual to cleanse your house and to get anybody that's sort of lingering good or bad um get them to move on and you have to sort of a clash copper at the end of it and bathe and all sorts of things and it's um and you can't you have to do, I think from memory you have to walk backwards and you can't look behind you so if you if you are doing it by yourself you have to make sure that everything is cleared out the way because otherwise you could go straight down your bum because you mm-hmm. tripped over shoes or but you have to do it in every room yeah and you have to do it at midnight and that was that was very very entertaining and I think it was, I think it was a year and a half later, I was still finding black beans <laughs> in various corners, or I'd sort of lift up a rug and go, oh, here's another black bean. Um, but yes, the Vestal Virgins got in on the act because they would um, throw effigies of um, men into the into the water. So there, there's a bridge in Rome, and I can't remember which one it is, but they would throw all these effigies, and like 40 effigies of this bridge, I think, it was a more of a cathartic ritual mm-hmm. uh, more than anything else. But it was a, yeah, it's a, obviously it, it doesn't really happen anymore now, but um, a lot of our, a lot of what we do is, is has remnants. I'm not going to say direct descendants because things are always changed and folk will never st- stand still. It, it, you know, it's even if you have a tradition that you say goes back to the dawn of time, it will have changed because you know, for the simple reason we have roads filled with tarmac, motorways, cars, yeah. phones, sewing machines, all, all of that. But um, so we have a lot. We have a lot of festivals. So Lemuralia has got you know shades of Halloween. You've got Saturnalia, uh, which has um, 
lots of um, echoes uh, into Christmas and New Year. So, and uh, there's a, I think it's the Lupercalia, which is around Valentine's Day uh, and where we get February from because they used to beat people with Feb, I want to say Februa, uh, which are goat thongs, I think. Mm -hmm. I might be getting this all terribly wrong. Uh, <laughs> so there, there, and that, that was a fertility festival. Lupercalia was a fertility festival. Um, and so again, Valentine's Day on, on top of it, because I think Lupercalia was the 15th Valentine's Day, so is the 14th. Mm -hmm. So it is really interesting, the the echoes that we can see and, and the, the borrowing and the... the... <laughs> yeah, that's the, the beauty of folklore, it, the, the, the migration of all of it. And that's an excellent segue. You do talk a lot about weather divination and love divination. And you had <laughs> yes. mentioned the women walking backwards you had mentioned hair minus yes. it being threaded and then sewn into a corpse <laughs> thigh but there is a, a collection of north carolina folklore that i use regularly in mm. my research and, and reference before these reasons these strange little practices that this gentleman frank c brown collected of north carolina folklore and there's a very hefty section on love divination yeah. And equally large for weather, uh, harvesting and, and planting. Yes. We do have this lore, but no one do these practices, but no one really does this anymore. You're walking down the dirt path to wherever, and you happen to step on some hair. <laughs> you take that hair and it will be the hair color of yeah. your future, you know, beloved, yeah. whomever that is. Yeah, you can take it and put it in your shoe. You can bake it into a dumb cake. <laughs> yeah, you can put it in your pocket and hop nine railroad ties. Oh wow! Or like ten, that. or thirteen, or seven, depending on where you are from. Yeah. But it's this idea of collecting hair or finding hair, reciting some rhyme as you count, or walk backwards. Then go to sleep immediately. So dumb cakes, uh, th there are so many different ways to do it because um, I I sort of look at folklore as a bit like a dialect. So you go to one town, uh, but it can change even within families. So something like a dumb cake, you have almost an infinite amount of ways that you can do it. So for instance, the ingredients, some people would just use flour, water, and salt. Some people would add sugar and, and currants, making it more cakey. These, uh, I think people that used to add the sugar and the currants, it would make sense that they're the people that would eat part of the dumb cake because not everybody would eat part of the dumb cake. It would mm -hmm. just be, sometimes it would just be broken up and put, put under pillows. But then you also get um, people that swore that you had to put things like brick dust, sand, urine nail clippings um lots of you know hair like you say lots of mm -hmm. horribly inedible revolting things in them you had the ingredients that would change depending on who you were doing it with you'd also have measurements that would change so some people would measure in um, ounces others in thimbles in eggshells in pinches in spoons so you could have you know two totally you could have two households both doing dumb cakes 
both doing it completely different ways and each of them would have a completely valid way of doing it mm-hmm. so um if you were going to go and do your own dumb cake i think there is a certain liberty you could take with the ingredients and with the way that you're doing it so um the one thing that did always remain the same was dumb was meant silent mm-hmm. um uh, dumb cakes also called dreaming cakes or dreaming bread um but yes the the dumb was thought to 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 mean silence there was another meaning as well which of course i've forgotten um <laughs> but yes you had to be silent all the way through and usually it was three three to make it um three to break it um there were also loads and loads of different rhymes you can use to to make it but it was usually made by three unmarried maids but i um something i don't know if you picked up in the book is that it's I've written it so that anybody could do it. You don't yes. have to be a maid. You could be anybody. Anybody can do it. It's, it's, I think that's perfectly valid as well. Um, so basically you make this cake and you bind it with water, you bind it with urine or apple juice or whatever you want to bind it with. And then you can either prick out um, your initials on it, or you can just leave it, or you can prick out the initials of somebody that you love. And then it goes into the oven and then it's broken into thirds. These thirds are then either a nibble is taken out of them or they're kept whole uh, and then they're put under pillows. And uh, then you have to, um, one of the ways that you do it is it the clock strikes midnight and then you have to walk backwards. So again, the backwards, they <laughs> walking mm-hmm. backwards and then you have to get into bed without speaking and then you go to sleep and then the cake you are supposed to either dream of who you're going to marry or you look at the cake in the morning and the initial of who you're going to marry has appeared on the cake or if you've put an initial on the cake if there's a bite taken out of it it means that you know the the proposal has been accepted spiritually Mm -hmm. so um there are lots and lots of different ways but so you could in fact make up your own tradition if you were going to do a dumb cake you you could make up your own tradition because there are so many different ways of doing it and it depends on what you know what area of the country what your grandmother told your mother who told you so yeah that's, that's very i mean it is, it is exactly the same thing in appalachia as well again i don't know that many people do this anymore mm. and specifically suppers and cakes that kind of assurance that exists in love divination and also exists in weather divination i've i've had come conversations with folks about this as well that when you are that secluded in very remote areas of appalachia where you might not have neighbors they could be a half a mile away but you're in the mountains yeah you don't have the luxury of just going on an app and swiping (laughs) left or right whether or not you think this person is interesting yes so the person you find that you fancy you want to know as much about them as possible and how do you do that you do this through all these what we would now call strange divinations but it was not strange to them we still do it in some ways today and the same thing goes with weather folklore you cannot risk planting the wrong time of the year because you have to harvest, same thing with harvesting, you can't risk screwing up your harvest because that's how you live 
through the yeah. winter. A lot of folks who aren't familiar with the reasons why they think it's the strangest thing. Why, where this, where does this rhyme? Uh, was it fish scales or mares tails um, that you use or mackerel scales or something like that about the, the, yeah. the clouds will is a predictor for rain. Yes. Which is a hundred percent true. I do that every single day. I <laughs> always look at the clouds. Yeah. It means that there's a pressure change and you can expect rain. Yeah. And when I, I would repeat that rhyme to people, they would look at me like I had two heads because where do you get this from? Well, it, you have to know when it's going to rain. You <laughs> have to know when to plant your beans. You have to know when to plant your corn. Yeah. You need to know when to harvest these things. And you have a lot of that in this book. There's a yeah. lot of, it, this isn't entirely true. I was going to say, if it's not love divinations, it's weather divinations. <laughs> Uh, but there's, I mean, there's tons of other wonderful stuff in there, but there's a lot of it Yes, for those reasons, because you didn't have the luxury of just getting yeah. food or finding love. So you had to know. And I wanted to ask you those, the, the weather divination and, and planting and harvesting, is that something that you do in your day-to-day -day life as well? In a way, yes. Um, so I wasn't, uh, I wasn't brought up in the country or anything, but um, I was brought up to sort of observe what was going on around me. So we would have, um, I used to live by a railway track uh, and the, the fence was covered in blackberries. So um, it was a really good sign of whether or not it had been a good summer if everything was covered in blackberries. But we also knew not to pick them after a certain date because the blackberries would be rubbish. Uh, and that's where partly where the devil has a, you know, has his way with, <laughs> with blackberries, but also um, the the old wives tale. And I have so much respect for every old wife. And I don't mm -hmm. say uh, old wives in a, pejor a pejorative way because um, I'm a huge fan of what they've been talking about all these years. Um, but the 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 idea that um, it's going to be a really heavy winter if the berries start on the trees really really early or the on the bushes and I still sort of walk around going ah okay so I'm gonna need jumpers am I <laughs> because it's a uh, very very early September and the holly is really out and and um so I've always sort of used that um been really pleased when the dandelions come back and dandelion clocks start happening and and um and ring round the moon, that was always one of my favorite ones. If there's a ring round the moon, I think it means it's going to be rain. I don't I don't particularly feel like I had a uh, an upbringing that was particularly full of folklore, but it's just it is just family stuff that gets passed down, like the berries, like blackberry picking and um so so my mum, not a forager whatsoever, but she very much instilled in me that whatever you do, if whatever you're going to forage, whatever you're going to pick from a bush, um, if it's below the height that a dog's leg can cock, you have to wash it first or you just don't pick it. It's, uh, yeah, I'm just trying to think of weather ones that, so the, the, um, the rhyme that you were talking about was mares tails and mackerel scales make lofty ships carry low sails. So that was, yeah, that was a storm warning. Um, St. Swithin's, so mm -hmm. if it rains on St. Swithin's Day, it's going to rain for 40 day, days more. But um, 
having said that, whenever I would look at St. Swithin's and think, oh, it's going to rain or it's not going to rain, I would totally forget to go, oh, you know, 10 days afterwards, oh, it's raining or oh, it's sunny. So um, sometimes it's just sort of like the immediate thing of, oh, thank goodness. And then I, I sort of forget. But I find weather law quite fascinating because, again, who who decided, um, mm. you know, if a beam of light comes through a window on a particular day, it's um, there is there is a lot of truth yeah. to it. Growing up with uh, farming grandparents, and I mentioned this in a previous episode, we had those little sayings like you have uh, read in the morning shepherd's warning. Yeah, we say sailors. I don't know why, because where my grandparents lived, there was no water let alone sailors. <laughs> but we also had uh, knee high by the 4th of July for your corn. That's right. Yes. We also had the same thing about, you know, if the, the berries or the tomatoes or whatever were a certain above a certain height, you're fine. But everything else you wash. Well, why do we wash them? You just do. <laughs> um, and again, your book is full of them. Now that I've read everything is leaving it in my kitchen so when i'm having coffee in the morning and making breakfast i will open it up to today and see oh here is something now it might not necessarily be relevant to where i live but it's an interesting little bit of knowledge and history and what i'm hoping folks will do who listen to the show and buy your book which there will be a link in the show notes to do so <laughs> is find speaking of links connections between what happens over there and over yeah. here because like love divination weather divination all of all of that uh festivals one thing i would love to see are folks throughout the region who have a scottish or irish welsh cornish english background say oh yeah my family does something similar to that here yeah. but it doesn't go outside of the house or maybe the immediate family would be wonderful. Yeah. I would love to hear from someone who builds a tiny little Viking boat and has their own little Scottish <laughs> Up Helia festival every year in this little remote area of, of Appalachia. That would uh, be amazing. It would be fun. And I hope people do reach out, you know, once they get your book and read it day to day. And that's the wonderful thing of it. People can read it every single day. And then when you're done, you start over from the beginning. And it's one of those books that you never stop reading. Oh, it's worth the you. investment. It's an investment and it's worth <laughs> it. Um, one of the things that I would really love. So there is, you've reminded me, there, there is um, an American piece of folklore and I can't remember where it's from. It's a mountain region in America. Mm -hmm. So it could be Appalachia where um, how many folks there are in August relates to how many snowfalls there are in winter. So there is somebody that runs a blog who, who, every August counts how many um, fogs there are in August and then counts them against the snowfalls in the winter. So oh, I'd be really beautiful. interested if people, if people next August wanted to count how many fogs there are in their area and just, just count it off in, in the winter. You have a lot of that too in the beginning of your book. If on this random day in January, yeah. February or March... <laughs> You are going to, yeah. you can expect this kind of weather in the, in the spring or in the summer. I'm going to start doing that as well. When it comes around to that again, actually, I'll just go back and look right now and, and look in the, the early 
months of the year to see what's going to happen and then write it down in my little journal that I keep in my, for my bird watching. I have a little bird watching journal <laughs> that I keep in, in my kitchen because I'm 75. Uh, <laughs> I have nothing else to do. Uh, no, I, I just love that stuff. I grew up bird watching, but there's also a lot of bird lore in there as well. And yes, we have a lot like... of that in the South, a lot of that in the mountains, because you can, again, you can plant and harvest based on migratory patterns of birds. Yes. And looking at their behavior um, predicts the weather. So mm -hmm. um, again, wish I could remember this clearly, but uh, it's, I think if birds are nesting low to the ground, then it's going to be really crappy weather. I think yes. that's, that's one of them. Which is something I've started doing, paying attention to if the birds, there are no birds in the trees. If you see them in the, like the lower bushes or hedgerows, yeah. like I have bushes, low bushes in my, in my yard. If the birds are tending to hang out there, it means you're going to get nasty, windy weather oh, because gosh. they know we have the same thing with cows. If yeah. the cows out in the field lay down, you're going to get rained on or something horrible is going to happen. Yeah, we've got that one too. I wanted to also talk about the artwork in this book because it is a not only a beautiful book to read, but a just to look at all of the illustrations and the cover work is gorgeous. So the artist Amberly Kramhoft. Yes. Did I say that right? So the, the can you talk about that? Because it's I I, I want to give credit where credit's due on the artwork there. She is absolutely incredible. Mm -hmm. Um and absolutely joyous to work with. Uh, uh, what I wanted to do was try and bring to life certain things that would be difficult in the tiny word count that I had for each section to to bring alive. So she's beautiful illustrations of um, Krampus, for example, mm -hmm. or uh, the Berry Man, Berry Man rather. Uh, so she sort of gave life to these amazing creations that we've already given life to but it's quite difficult to um describe and so she did all of that but then she did all this beautiful natural world stuff as well so there's um i i think i i made a note saying can we have a weasel that is sort of looking oh did you mean me oh how very strange and that's exactly that's exactly she did that. yes <laughs> I was oh, going oh to mention God. that as it, that <laughs> illustration stood out to me because I'm a big fan of of Jeff the Talking Mongoose. Uh, yes. <laughs> and so when I saw that, I was like, "That looks like a Jeff." But it was it's that was wonderful. The the cover <laughs> as well. It is this just beautiful. I'm staring at it right now, which doesn't help in an audio medium. But this beautiful <laughs> moon and just this gold inlay, and then the uh, you have a spinning wheel, a fox a rabbit and then Elvis. Yes. I I really wanted to make sure that because everybody's heard stories about foxes and and spinning wheels and and teacups and everyone knows about folklore associated with that. But then I wanted the there's also a space helmet there and Elvis mm -hmm. and I just wanted it to be a little bit different for people to go what well why is that there? What what does folklore have to do with that? Cuz this a lot of people feel that folklore is fairies and and mermaids and um, strange men wearing antlers and dancing. And it, a lot of it is, and mm -hmm. it is all the better for it. But actually, folklore is, is the way that I interpret it anyway, is what we do, why we do it, and how we do it. So mm -hmm. it's folklore is, could be how your family takes their tea. 
So they might put the milk in first, they might stir it clockwise, they might put the sugar in. And it's just the tiny little rituals we do. And also the big up heliars and um, wassailing and all of that. There's There are so many different types of personal stuff and com communal stuff. Uh, but there are things like the Elvis uh, festival at Port mm -hmm. Cool, where lots and lots of Elvis impersonators get together and uh, be Elvis for a weekend. And it is quite joyous and it is an annual tradition. And But there are traditions within that. So people wear rhinestones, people mm -hmm. wear capes, people have sideburns or they go, you know, slightly earlier Elvis and clean shaven and or he's in his military uniform. Mm -hmm. So there, there are all sorts of different ways of of observing traditions and rituals that don't necessarily sort of fall under the 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 banner of ghosts and and supernatural and things it could just be the slightly it could be the mundane things like um which goes first the jam or the cream on a scone which is right. the devon cornish debate or it could be something huge like Elvis, or it could be so. The the space helmet is because cosmonauts have a tradition of weighing on the back tire of the the bus that takes them to the to the launch pad, because that's what Yuri Gagarin did on the on his first go up. So, it's traditions are made all the time. Folklore changes all the time. Traditions are made all the time, and it's not just the stuff that we would naturally consider as being folklore. It's just the tiny little day to day things or the more modern things or you know or elvis basically or elvis yeah yes <laughs> we, we have so many festivals similar to that i'm seeing more and more of it from younger folks moving out into the country who have an interest in these things yeah people who are a little more aware of world lore and traditions respecting nature respecting the season things like that it's things that i do which is why this book is wonderful because then it justifies all my weird behavior to my friends and family around me. It's like, no, 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 this is older than you think. I'm not, I'm not just a weirdo, but we also have the traditions. Like in my town, we have a sweet potato festival because oh, we are known this, this region is known for cotton, tobacco, and sweet potatoes. You have Bigfoot festivals all over the place. There's all these little like towns have, cryptids and they have their little mini monster festival on top of having like a state fair or a county fair yeah i would love to see more of folks who have a strong uk family tie yeah telling me about the traditions that their family brought over where they're you know german all the way back yeah. and we do this for oktoberfest this is our family tradition where it's not just dancing around and drinking and being stupid like the americans do this is our family tradition going all the way back or things uh yeah with dia de los muertos i i live there's a predominantly uh, mexican-american neighborhood right across the street from me those folks what traditions do you take from where your family is from and yeah. how do you change them in such a way that they're more accessible and applicable to this particular region how yeah. you cook, the food that you use, the music that you play. Is it the same? Has it been changed in any way because you're not in Mexico, because you're not in Germany or France or wherever? What have you changed to make that folk tradition yours in this new region? Yeah. And this is an excellent book for that, to trace those roots for some of these things. Thank you. 
Yeah, it's been it's been wonderful. And my last question before I let you go, out of everything that's in there, is there anything that really stands out as being your favorite that gives you that sense of this is a really beautiful tradition. This is really nice and it gives me that love of a, being a folklorist, being a folklore researcher, knowing this really makes me feel better. Is there any one particular practice in there that you can think of? So, uh, so one of the, one of the practices that I did was on um, Lammas, which uh, is the 1st of August. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, so uh, Lammas is about sort of harvest and bread and wheat. And one of the traditions was um, people used to bake dough, kind of plaques, dough kind of structures. And um, when I was younger, I used to be a prop maker and I used to use my hands a lot mm. to sculpt. Um, I was a prop maker, I was a sculptor. It's something that I don't do anymore. I, I occasionally knit, I occasionally crochet, but I don't sort of get down and dirty with, you know, stuff that gets underneath your fingernails and you don't get out forever. And so I decided that I would make this plaque and I went out and uh there's a railway verge quite near where I am. And I took a whole load of little cuttings of the uh, plants that I found there. So there was teasels, there was lavender, there was rosemary. Uh, I think there was some mallow potentially. I can't, never very good at spotting a mallow. Um, <laughs> and I brought them all back and I sort of did a little arrangement. And then I made this this dough plaque. So, I, so it's just very simple. I think it's um, two, two and two. Or no, it's it's half and half salt and flour, and then you just mix it with water. There's no urine involved in this one, <laughs> uh, which is which is a godsend, I have to say. Um, and then I just sort of sculpted this little posy that I'd made, and there was something about working with my hands and the eye eye hand coordination of making sure that everything that I was using as source material was then transformed into to dough it was amazing and I had totally forgotten I'd you know I'd gone through cycle through so many different jobs since I was sculpting and prop making I'd completely forgotten the absolute joy of making something from nothing you know half an hour before I started there was nothing there there was a bag of flour there was water in the tap and there was salt in the shaker and then you know, two hours later, there's this beautiful plaque, even if I do say so myself, um, that that had, you know, 3D relief of all these amazing plants that I'd found near my home and was a record, which became a record of that day, even more than the actual blog that I wrote on it. And um, yeah, I just found that to be just one of my favourite things. Just, it just reminded me so much of who I used to be and who I could be again if I chose to sort of go down this route. It was just lovely. That's beautiful. There is something wonderful about when you when you step away from some kind of practice or something that really brought you so much joy, stepping away from it for however long, for whatever reason, and coming back to it in a new way, doing something that you didn't even think about or know about. In, in this case, it was uh, making these this beautiful plaque. I'm glad that that came to you. You're working with your hands and not working with your hands for so long and coming back to it. That's wonderful. Do you still have that plaque or was it? 
Oh, yes. Yeah, you I do? kept absolutely everything from uh, the project uh, that the book is based on. Absolutely everything from um, predictions to secret writing to I didn't keep any of the food. I think I've got some of the dumb cake. I've still got the um, the uh, hot cross bun that I made. It's gone very moldy now. Mm-hmm. I've got a soul cake. No, I kept absolutely everything. That's it's wonderful. Uh, yeah, it's in a, all in, most of it is in a box underneath my bed, but it's still there. <laughs> sure. The book is Everyday Folklore, an Almanac for the Ritual Year. The author here, who was gracious enough to let me have some of her time today, was Liza Frank. And where can people find you? Obviously, the book is available on Amazon. But uh, yeah, where can folks find you on social media and your blog and all that? So I on social media, I'm usually under lily the punk so that's l-i-l-i the punk um due to the fact that lily the punk was playing when my mum was given birth apparently um <laughs> and uh my website is uh www.liza and that's l-i-z-a dash frank.com and uh you can read all about the book you can read all about the project and you can also um so i also Uh, right now as the folklore agony aunt so if you have a problem that conventional wisdom has let you down uh, with uh, you can just get in contact with me with your problem and I will solve it using folklore so it'll be wrapping your throat with a stocking made uh, stuff full of salt or um, how to you know appease a ghost or just how to get some confidence um, when you're going for a job interview, I can solve anything and I can solve it using wow. folklore. I should have reached out to you several months ago when I was job hunting. That would oh, have been great. Listen, the things you can do with a knob of ginger when you're job hunting. So, uh... oh, well, there we go. I need to eat more ginger. <laughs> well, that's great. And I'm, I'm, this was a wonderful conversation. As I said, I've followed you on social media for a while. There's always amazing folklore tidbits, you know, as small as Twitter can allow. You really pack a lot of stuff in there. And this book is, as I said, it's it's beautiful to look at, to hold. It has just, it's a beautiful weight too. Like <laughs> I can stand there and hold it. It's not cumbersome. All the information in there is is interesting. It's so much fun to say that I'd never heard of this or this sounds familiar to me. And as I said, once you finish the book, you have to start over again. So it's a cut, you'll be reading it every single day for the rest of your life. So I highly recommend <laughs> folks buy that. It's again, Everyday Folklore by Liza Frank. And thank you so much for coming on the show today. I really appreciate oh, it. Thank you. It's been, I've had a lovely time. Thank you. Thanks for spending your time with me here at the Appalachian Folklore Podcast. If you'd be so kind as to rate and review this show on whatever platform you use, I'd be much obliged as it helps spread the word. You can email me at appfolklorepod at gmail.com and visit my website, shows.acast.com AFP. You can find me at AppFolklorePod on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. You can also find me on Mastodon at AppFolklorePod at thefolklore.cafe. Thanks to Jonathan Ochoa for the AFP cover art. You can find his work on Instagram at Inkwell Graphic Design. Thanks again for listening.